You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. And if you're not a member, consider joining. Members get extra episodes just for Patreon subscribers, and all our episodes ad-free. Membership starts at just $2 a month. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl for more info. And as always, thanks for listening. You got to make the bad man fly. It's the spring of the year, the time of the new calves and the planting of the spring wheat, a time of melting snows and the awakening of the forests and fields. But there is no joy for your people this year. The great and powerful tribes to the south have fallen under Roman sway. The resistance leader Caratacus has played his hand and lost. He fled the battlefield at Caracaradog and was handed over in chains to the Romans by his own former allies. The Druids kept up the resistance. For years they gave strength and succor to the rebels, worked their magic in the earth, and rained down retribution on the Roman conquerors. But the gods that they prayed to have faded from this world, and now even their own ancient magic has passed on. The Druids had fled to their one remaining refuge, the island of Anglesey, protected by networks of spells older than imagining and the treacherous straits. They raised their hands to the stars and called down imprecations, lit torches on the beach to draw and concentrate their powers. But it wasn't enough. The Druids have fallen, and they will not rise again. Only one part of the island has remained untouched, till now, your land, the wild, untamed north. And now the Romans seek to change that. Your people flee to the highest glens, the last strongholds of the far north, and you come following close behind them. You turn back once and see that the Roman general has sent his fleet before him. Already they swarm the reaches, bottling you in and closing off the sea. Already smoke is rising black as death among the coastal towns. The Romans are hard at their work, at the robbery, slaughter, and plunder they accuse your people of. They are raising the villages, scorching the crops in the fields, and making the wasteland that they call peace. I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. Hadrian's Wall is a jaw-dropping engineering achievement stretching 73 miles from coast to coast across 100-foot-high escarpments and rushing rivers, Withstanding freezing winters and wet, rainy summers, its earthworks dug deep into unforgiving igneous bedrock. 
It's a grand imperial venture dreamed up by an architecture-obsessed megalomaniac and executed by human hands in a rush of sweat, blood, cursing, and corner-cutting. It's the largest Roman artifact in existence, and yet we still have no idea why it was built. It's barely mentioned in the ancient sources, but in its rise and fall, you can trace the rise and fall of Roman Britain as a whole. This is the epic story we're going to tell you, the story of Hadrian's Wall. The year is 83 AD, or maybe it's 84 AD. The bulk of Britain has come under Roman sway. The great resistance leader, Caratacus, has been soundly defeated and handed over to the Romans in chains. Boudicca's rebellion has been put down. The Druids had made their last stand at Anglesey and fallen. Only one part of the island remains unconquered. The wild, untamed north. The ginger's upstairs. Gotta support my people. (laughs) The General Agricola, architect of British subjugation, sought to change that. A confederation of highland tribes, which the Romans called the Caledoni, rallied against him. Agricola sent a fleet before him to rouse the enemy to a panic state, to bottle them in and close the sea off from them. Then he marched his army all the way to the Grampian Mountains, the start of the Scottish highlands. The resistance leader, Calgacus, cast his eyes down the mountains and into the plains and valleys of his home and watched the Romans come from across the sea. To robbery, slaughter, plunder, they give the lying name of empire, he said. They make a wasteland and call it peace. According to Tacitus, the Caledoni outnumbered the Romans approximately three to one. Although Romans might be a bit of a misnomer here because Agricola was primarily using British and German auxiliaries for this battle and keeping his Roman legions in reserve, which is something that they did a lot. Even so, the battle was a devastating loss for the Caledoni resulting in over 10,000 dead on the Caledonian side and just 360 dead on the Roman side. Immediately after this resounding victory, Agricola was recalled back to Rome for good, given a triumph, and showered with rewards. You know what, Jenny? This is so unusual. Do you remember when Germanicus got his triumph? Um, you mean for his battles in Germania? Yeah. Yeah. I remember reading in Suetonius, Something like, they didn't actually give out triumphs anymore to generals and military leaders. Only the emperor got a triumph because Tiberius at the time was so jealous of all the popularity. So the fact that Agricola managed to like swindle this triumph and you can imagine the emperor is not happy. Yeah, and I think that Domitian was actually really threatened by Agricola. Absolutely. The Emperor Domitian's relationship with Agricola really soured after this. Giant shocker, Domitian had to suck a lot of eggs and he wasn't happy. Agricola's great success as a general made him feel threatened and anxious. And even now, some historians doubt that the victory was quite so resounding. Some have suggested it never happened at all, that Agricola made it all up to justify bringing his conquest to a close. Before going back to Rome, Agricola ordered military camps throughout the Caledonian lowlands, and also in strategic glens and valleys that gave access to the highlands, the glen blockers. He saw a network of forts and military roads completed to solidify the Roman presence all along the boundary between lowlands and highlands, and control people's movements up into the highland areas. He left the infrastructure necessary to continue Roman conquest into Caledonia, and Caledonia is what the Romans called Scotland, not what the tribes of Scotland would have called themselves. But as we've talked about when we talked about Germania and Gaul and everywhere else, there's quite a lot of tribes and a lot of different people. So sometimes we will just refer to them by the Roman name unless we're talking about a specific tribe. 
And we're also going to use the word Scotland, even though we're aware that Scotland did not exist then. It's just sometimes easier to say Scotland and clearer to a modern audience. But not too long after Agricola returned to Rome, the Emperor Domitian found himself at war with the Kingdom of Dacia. He recalled the northernmost legion, the one stationed to keep order and subjugate the population of Caledonia, to fight in this war in around 87 or 88 AD, just four or five years after the Battle of Mons Grappius. As a result, the wild, untamed north remained wild and untamed. All those gingers up there just stayed ginger and stayed wild and stayed untamed. Agricola's main base of operations, a large fortress at Inchtuthil, still under construction, was dismantled and abandoned before it was even finished. All the Glenblocker forts were decommissioned. And Domitian, busy with more urgent problems, decided holding Caledonia was just not worth the cost, so he let it go. And the Romans did not make a serious move to conquer this region again for the time being. In the decades after Agricola's departure, the generally understood boundary between Roman Britain and Free Caledonia retracted to the Stangate Road. Archaeology suggests that the troops withdrew peacefully and voluntarily rather than being routed in battle. The Stangate Road was a Roman road 38 miles in length that connected the forts of Corstopatum, the modern town of Corbridge, in the east, and Lugavolium, or Carlisle, in the west. Some of it is still in use today. The Romans built forts at half-day marches from each other all along this road, and communities sprang up around them, houses, workshops, markets, and farms. The northernmost boundary of the Roman Empire became the Stangate Road, and for decades, that's how it stayed, until Hadrian got involved. Have you heard of Hadrian? Hold on to your pearls, Denny. It's going to get wild. I'm so excited. Hadrian was born in 76 AD to an aristocratic family with deep Italian roots. His parents died when he was 10 years old, and he was sent to become the ward of his father's cousin, a committed military man named Trajan. Some people say Trajan. Either might be right. Trajan, Trajan, tomato, tomato. Oh my god, do you know my husband and I still fight aggressively about tomato and tomato? I say tomato every time, and my husband is just like... It is tomato, Dan. And I'm like, no, it's not, because that sounds wrong. I'm just going to say Trajan, because I am an uneducated Yankee. Trajan, go for it. (laughs) Trajan became emperor in 98 AD when he was 45 and Hadrian was 22. Trajan was one of the most expansionist emperors in Roman history. He had a giant, tumescent, throbbing, expansionist agenda. He really needed to go to the hospital and have that looked at. It's too bad that they didn't have modern medicine back then, so all he could do to take out his aggression was just beat up on other people. It was just indulge his raging expansionist boner. That's what he did. He whipped it out and beat other people into submission with it, fighting wars in Dacia, Parthia, and Nabatea. Under his 19 years of leadership, because that's how long this went on, the Roman Empire grew larger and more throbby and more tumescent than it ever had before, stretching all the way from the Stangate boundary in isolated Caledonia to North Africa, all across the Mediterranean and into modern-day Iraq. Hadrian, meanwhile, worked his way up in the government and married Trajan's 17-year-old niece, Vibia Sabina, when he was 24. Which is not the most horrific age difference we've encountered. I mean, it's not good, but... Now I feel like if a 17-year-old is dating a 24-year-old, that understandably gets some side-eye, you know. As it should. (laughs) As it should. But what we're working with here in ancient history fangirl is 13-year-olds marrying 45-year-olds. So it's like, oh, wow, they're within the same age galaxy. They're within the same generation. (laughs) He couldn't be her grandfather. Isn't that refreshing? Or (laughs) great-grandfather. 
<laughs> I know. It's just fucking horrific. Everything is terrible. That is not the worst age difference. And also, I don't think they're 100% related. So that's ideal, really. Hadrian, he actually is kind of related to Trajan. Trajan's his father's cousin, which makes him, what, like his second cousin? Or is there a once removed? So is he also related to his wife? Yeah, but it's not as bad as she's his actual niece. He's not her uncle, husband, daddy. Exactly. (laughs) So all in all, this is a great relationship, right? Except that these two absolutely loathed each other. They hated each other's guts. I mean, can't imagine why that would be. So the Historia Augusta, which we have told you many times, is about as trustworthy as us and the Onion. (laughs) (laughs) And the Onion and the National Enquirer. Make of it what you will. So... The Historia Augusta tells us that once he was emperor, Hadrian used to declare that if he was a private citizen, he'd have sent his wife away long ago on account of her general ill temper and irritability. Surprising no one, these two never had any children. So Hadrian did have a significant love interest in his life, a guy named Antinous, a much younger man whose story we're going to tell you all about in an upcoming Patreon episode. So all of that is in the future. For now, we're early in Hadrian's career. He's a young man, he's in his 20s, and he's a trusted member of Trajan's household. He's got a wife who he hates, who also hates him. Possibly she doesn't like him because he doesn't like her. Like, can you imagine how awful it would be (laughs) to be, like, forced married to your cousin or your fifth cousin once removed for power? I think that that's not at all uncommon among women in the ancient world. Yeah, I think so, but I feel like Hadrian's the kind of guy who's like, I'm going to play away all the time, but you're not allowed to. It might be the norm, actually. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it is pretty much the norm. You kind of want a husband if that's going to be your situation where they're just like, just keep it on the down low and it's all cool. Right, but that it's almost never like that. No. But Hadrian and Trajan, I'm going to talk about Hadrian and Trajan's relationship now. They did not, according to the Historia Augusta, which take with a grain of salt, they apparently did not have the perfect relationship. Ancient sources, i.e. the Historia Augusta, describe a lot of passive-aggressive nonsense. Trajan not promoting Hadrian to jobs he was clearly qualified for, giving him other jobs that seemed prestigious on paper but required him to go far away. It was all very passive-aggressive and gaslighting, nothing you could put your finger on. But there is a certain pattern here. Yeah, they're boning. (laughs) You think so? I do. I feel like Trajan is keeping Hadrian on the hook. I feel like they have this really intense relationship where it's like, Hadrian and him just get really close and then Trajan just like throws him to the far-flung area of the world to sort of like make him jealous. You think that there's some mind games going on here? I mean, listen, if we're using the Historia Augusta as a source, why not? First off, um, we know that both of these guys liked men. That's not hidden in the ancient sources. And I think it would be really savvy of Hadrian to become Trajan's ward and then see what he can do to seduce him, you know, to get into his good graces. Absolutely. It's also possible, and I I don't know if this is probable, but that based on what I know about the cult of Mithras, Trajan would have been the daddy, and I'm sure he would have, like, inducted Hadrian into this cult. That cult, as we learned in our Christmas pee drinking episode, was all about sort of making these social connections to advance your career. So it would make a lot of sense to me that Hadrian sort of maneuvered him into a position 
where he could make a lot of advances. I mean, whether or not he was getting it on with Trajan, we will never know. But I don't think it's a step too far to think they might have had a romantic relationship. I mean, look, as long as we're writing erotica in our heads, I think Hadrian maneuvered his way into um, the secret caverns of Mithras and then into the secret love chambers of Trajan's bedroom. If somebody (laughs) writes that erotica, I would love to read it. (laughs) If Jenny Williamson writes that erotica, I'll let you know what name she used. Here's another juicy bit of gossip from the Historia Augusta, Jen. The Historia Augusta suggests that Hadrian sought to influence Trajan's decisions by seducing Trajan's boyfriends. Well, there you go. I mean, you can see what's going on here. These two. They had like a love tetrangle, a love octagon, so much drama. And this led to some kind of argument that took place around Hadrian's wedding. And here we see why Vibia Sabina maybe doesn't like Hadrian because he's boning her uncle. But not just her uncle, he's also boning all of her uncle's boyfriends to get political power. I mean, this reminds me so much of Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar, what do you think of all this? Well, Miss Williamson, since you asked... Hadrian was a very savvy boy. Julius Caesar knows that when one is in a precarious position with an expansionist emperor, the best thing to do is to shore up one's power however one must. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Tell me more. Miss Williamson, I'm not going to go into any more details than that. I know you're already studying every word I give you because they're pearls of wisdom from the afterlife. (laughs) Okay, Julius Caesar. Thanks for dropping in. We're moving on. Anyway, so they had this giant blowout, Trajan and Hadrian, that happened during Hadrian's wedding to Vibia Sabina, who was like, dude, you are boning my uncle and all my uncle's boyfriends, and I'm not letting that uncle fucking bee get anywhere near me. And it really sucks to be a woman in the ancient world. I'm sure that's what's going on in her head. That sounds so, so right to me. And let me just say that this is all completely speculative and we have no actual proof that Trajan and Hadrian were sleeping together. We're just creating our own fan fiction. (laughs) We're writing our own fan fiction and the reality is that for whatever reason, they had a blowout. Could be because Hadrian was becoming more popular. It could be because there was discontent in Trajan's court because Hadrian was sleeping with everyone in it. We don't know exactly what happened. And it could be that Phibia Sabina was working the drama as well. She wasn't happy about this marriage. She might have been stirring up shit. We don't know. Maybe she wrote the entire Historia Augusta. We don't know. Or at least the part about Hadrian. Oh my god, maybe she did. Wouldn't that be great? I mean, we don't know because she was she was a woman, so most of the ancient sources don't tell us anything. Not bitter at all. <laughs> the author or possible authors of the Historia Augusta are anonymous, so we'll never know. So Trajan died of illness in 117 AD. Hadrian at this time was 41. He was just coming into his prime zaddy years. And Trajan died without officially adopting Hadrian as his heir, which created a stability vacuum in the empire. Very dangerous. Just asking for a civil war. According to Cassius Dio, who heard it from his own dad, Trajan's wife, the Empress Platina, orchestrated Hadrian's rise to the throne by keeping Trajan's death a secret for several days and forging letters from Trajan to the Senate declaring Hadrian his heir. I mean, Plotina, was there ever like a name that you're just like, she's got to be up to something? I mean, look, it's just exactly what it says on the tin, Jen. (laughs) I guess her name might have been Plotina. I don't know. Plotina? It's spelled P-L-O-T-I-N-A. So of course she's plotting something. Obviously. So the Historia Augusta says, that the empress even had someone impersonate Trajan from behind a curtain to declare Hadrian officially adopted and thus in line for the throne. One of the things that Trajan had been doing was dangling 
the possibility of being heir to the throne in front of Hadrian for years and years without officially making him his heir. All very passive aggressive. It was one of the things that emperors did do when they didn't have a clear heir or ward. And it was a way to keep sort of the people who, or the person who you were grooming, hungry and not sort of resting on their laurels. You see Augustus did it a lot with his heirs. Yeah, and also maybe keeping everyone around them on their toes so that you don't have people trying to assassinate you because they're 100% sure that they get to be heir. Yeah, or because they can see the clear line of succession, you know what I mean? Yeah, it was a shark tank in there, you guys. Oh, yeah. So Hadrian was governor of Syria at the time when Trajan died. Hadrian had independent command of the entire Eastern Roman army, which made it much easier for him to secure the throne, regardless of the rumors swirling around the legitimacy of his adoption. So let's just remind you exactly why that is. Hadrian had the biggest army. It didn't really matter if Trajan made him his rightful heir or not. He was going to come back to Rome with the biggest army. Yeah, I mean, I think it did matter because it made the difference about whether it was going to be a violent coup or a legitimate passing of power that was not going to involve a whole lot of work on Hadrian's part. And I imagine that there were other people with other armies that could have posed a threat. But Hadrian did have the biggest army. He was really well positioned to take over anyway. And Plotina was just there to sort of grease the slide. Yeah. So off on campaign, Hadrian whipped off a letter to the Senate, informing them that he had accepted the title of emperor as if it had already been decided, explaining that the unseemly haste of the troops in acclaiming him emperor was due to the belief that the state could not be without an emperor. That is a veiled threat. What he's saying is, the troops are already behind me. They've already declared me emperor. If you have a problem with that, you better pick a fight with half the Roman army. So... Hadrian then paid off the legions with a big bonus, finished putting down a Jewish revolt that had started under Trajan, and enacted a very surgical purge, having four very highly placed senators, close friends of Trajan's who might also have had a reasonable claim to the throne, hunted down and killed. So that's how Hadrian came to power. And this happened in 117 AD. And it quickly became clear that Hadrian was going to do things a little differently than Trajan. Hadrian was not expansionist-minded. He didn't have a throbbing expansionist agenda that really needed to seek medical attention. No, his agenda was not too big. It's not too small. It's just right. Yeah, it's a respectable agenda. It's the kind of agenda that you're willing to bring home and introduce to your parents. So instead of launching himself into endless wars to protect and expand Trajan's vision of a Rome that eats the world, Hadrian preferred the strategy of maintaining strong, defensible borders. He didn't want the empire to get bigger. He wanted to keep it at the right size, a nice, maintainable size with nice, stable fences around it. That was just the right level of ambitious. It wasn't too much. It's not too much. You don't have to go to extreme lengths to accommodate that agenda. It can be a lot. Trajan was a lot. (laughs) Trajan had a stable of people to help with that agenda. Unlike previous emperors, Hadrian didn't like to rely on underlings and reports from far-flung places to monitor how things were going. He liked to visit the site and size things up for himself. Hadrian would wind up spending more than half his time as emperor outside of Italy touring the provinces. One of the places Hadrian traveled to during his reign was straight up to the empire's extreme northern boundary in the British Isles, the Stangate Road. While up there, he ordered the construction of a wall to mark the empire's boundary with the wild lands to the north. And then he left and never came back. Here's where we depart from Hadrian. Hadrian has gone 
back to running his empire, doing whatever he does outside of Roman Britain. And we at Ancient History Fangirl are going to stay at the wall. We're going to tell you how this wall was built and some weird mysteries about Hadrian's Wall because Hadrian's Wall is a mystery wrapped in an enigma coated in bacon. It's nuts and a little bit delicious. Kind of delicious. I'm not going to lie. So let's talk about the specifics of Hadrian's Wall. The wall was built just about 11 miles north of the old Stangate Road boundary, but it stretched much farther east and west than the Stangate Road. The Stangate Road did not go coast to coast, but Hadrian's Wall reached 73 miles, touching the North Sea in the east and the Irish Sea in the west. It took between six and ten years to complete. I've seen both of those in different sources, which would have required a pace of roughly seven to twelve miles a year, approximately. And this would have been an astounding accomplishment because Hadrian's Wall was built over some very rugged and rough terrain. It runs over steep hills, butts up against hundred-foot cliff faces, and crosses fast torrential rivers. A lot of the time, this ground is very inhospitable to digging, which they would have had to do to dig out the um, associated earthworks and build a foundation for the wall. Underneath the layer of dirt, there would be clay or sometimes igneous rock. And the builders wouldn't have been able to work on the wall during winter when the weather would have been too cold and the ground frozen. People think of Hadrian's Wall as the boundary between England and Scotland, but it's never been that. England and Scotland didn't exist during Hadrian's time. And even now, the wall is not at the boundary of modern-day Scotland. The entire wall is in northern England. It's less than a mile south of the Scottish border on the west side and about 68 miles south on the east side because the border slants up. So let's take a look at the individual parts of the wall, going from the smallest and least complicated to the largest and most complicated. When you start to look closely at how Hadrian's Wall was constructed, there are things that don't add up. Weird mysteries. We'll point them out as we go along. First, I want to talk about the wall itself, the wall part of the wall. So the wall part of the wall is a relatively simple structure, but its dimensions boggle the mind. It's made of over 25 million individual stone blocks, all of them laid by hand. Originally, it stood approximately 15 to 20 feet tall, estimates on that vary, and about 8 to 10 feet thick depending on where on the wall you are. In most places, the wall was built of two outside layers of roughly finished stone with an internal layer of rubble and clay. The stone came from quarries close to the build site, usually no more than two miles or so away. And that stone was really hard to mine. There is graffiti from Roman soldiers in the quarries used to build Hadrian's Wall bitching about how hard the stone was. The Roman military was known for its world-class engineering skills. This is what gave it the ability to travel to such remote places and win so many wars. But the outside layers of Hadrian's Wall were not that well constructed by Roman standards. The stones used were often bad quality and not precisely cut, but rather roughly finished, a type of finishing referred to by stonemasons today as squared rubble. In some areas, the soldiers barely bothered to square off the blocks at all. This suggests that the legionnaires who built the wall were cutting a lot of corners to get it done fast. Not all parts of the wall were originally built of stone. Originally, the entire western end of the wall, stretching 28 miles inland from the western coast, was constructed of a high wall of turf, with a timber structure on top. This is referred to as the turf wall. Some reconstructions depict a tall timber palisade on top, but pollen analysis done at the site suggests that this would more likely have been like a woven fence made of alder and birch branches cut from local forests. 
Because of the simple construction, this section of wall probably went up much faster than the rest of it. According to Adrian Goldsworthy in his book Hadrian's Wall, the surveyors who marked out the initial path of the wall started at either end and worked their way inland. However, the wall was not built in an orderly fashion from one end to the other. Instead, it appears it was built in a more haphazard fashion, with work occurring everywhere at random locations on the wall. Goldsworthy tells us that its most likely work teams were dedicated to a specific part of the wall. One team laid the foundations, another would come along and lay the bottom layer of stone and mortar and wait for it to set, then another team would lay another layer, and so on. The process of laying the stones with the limestone mortar would have been painstaking. The men would have had to lay the stones one layer at a time and then wait for the limestone to dry, which would take a few days before adding another layer. This process was frequently interrupted. Archaeological evidence suggests that sometimes foundations were laid, then exposed to the elements for years before a layer of wall was built on top. The width and height of the wall also changed depending on the location and the amount of building materials close by. Most of the original stone section of the wall was approximately 10 feet wide and about 15 to 20 feet high. The turf wall was about 20 feet wide and 11 feet high. And we say all of that with a lot of confidence, but nobody really knows exactly how tall the wall was. The historian Bede, writing in the 700s, describes it as 12 feet high, which is higher than any surviving stretch today. So most historians consider the original height to have been at least 12 feet, probably more like 15 in some places. And we've seen some historians suggest that it was originally as high as 20 feet. Most of the wall was built around 10 feet thick on a 10-foot wide base. However, there's one section where the base is 10 feet thick, but the wall itself is only 8 feet thick. Two feet of base stick out beneath it. It's not clear how high this section was intended to be, but parts of it survive that stand 10 feet tall. This section is the narrow wall. The rest of the wall is referred to as the broad wall. Adrian Goldsworthy believes that at some point in the wall's construction, after the 10-foot foundations were built in this area, someone made the decision to scale back the width of the wall from 10 feet to 8 feet or so. This would have meant that this section of wall could have been completed faster, at lesser cost, and using fewer resources. This was a cost-cutting measure. We don't know what the top of the wall looked like. Was there a walkway up there? We don't know. Do you know what? I think there were some beautiful, like, little gardens up there. They had fresh water, maybe a few cafes, a little gift shop so you can get my legionary parent works at Hadrian's Wall and all they gave me was this lousy t-shirt. <laughs> I mean, that's quite possible, but we have no proof. We don't even know if there were battlements, which are the sticky outy bits that you can hide behind if somebody happens to be rude enough to throw projectiles at you while you're up there. However, Jen, you're going to like this. There is a souvenir cup that you might have been able to purchase at the gift shop on top of Hadrian's Wall, should Hadrian's Wall have had a gift shop. I told you, gift shop. The souvenir cup is called the Rudge Cup, and it may offer some clues. So the Rudge Cup is a small enameled bronze cup that was found in a well at an ancient Roman villa in the 1700s. It's believed to be a souvenir cup sold to visitors of Hadrian's Wall in ancient Roman times and probably dates to around the 130s AD, about a decade or so after the wall was built. Although the weird thing is that there's only one that's ever been found. So the fact that it might have been a mass-produced souvenir item is a little bit iffy. There could be a whole collection of them somewhere. It's like, oh, last year's model sold really well. This year's model did not. Who knows? 
So the cup seems to show an image of Hadrian's wall with several forts picked out and labeled. And this is why archaeologists were able to figure out which fort is which along Hadrian's wall and label them correctly because of basically the map on the Rudge Cup. And the image on the cup is a little hard to interpret, but it may show the top of the wall with a crenellated parapet, which had like the sort of square sticky outy teeth like you imagine on a picture postcard medieval castle. So it may have had that. It may have had battlements. Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. So, Jenny, I want to talk a little bit about the turrets. Yes, let's talk about the turrets. So the turrets were small observation towers, generally about 150 square feet, evenly spaced about every third of a mile along the wall. Most scholars estimate they would have been about 30 feet high. Scholars believe that the turrets were for both observation and signaling. However, they weren't perfectly designed for that. There's at least one point on the wall where a turret is positioned in a place where it can't be seen by the next turret in the line, which would have broken a signaling chain. All turrets would have had an upper floor or platform for those on guard duty, and two lower floors for living space and storage. In most turrets, you would have reached the upper floors via a ladder. We don't know what the top floors of the turrets would have looked like, whether they were roofed or open to the elements, whether there was a balcony at the top going all the way around with maybe some, you know, really pretty planters on the edge. I don't know. Might have been. There are some depictions of military turrets that have roofs and balconies that go all around the top for observation. So that's where we're getting that from. But we don't know if that's what it looked like on Hadrian's Wall. The reason that we think it might have looked that way is because the Romans tended to build things based on set plans. So if this was like the typical plan for a turret, they are likely to have built it the same up there unless there was some reason not to but there are reasons why Hadrian's wall breaks a lot of molds so that's not 100% certain. So archaeological evidence suggests that there were men stationed at these turrets for short-term rotations rather than living in them permanently so an assignment at a turret might have lasted a few days or maybe a few weeks. Probably not a few months though. Dice and board games have been found at the turrets as well as cooking materials and weapons especially javelins and spearheads. We don't know if the turrets would have been armed with crossbows. However, archaeologists have found a bolt head from a ballista, which was kind of a proto-catapult that looked like a big crossbow in the remains of a turret. These were very powerful and deadly accurate at a range of 500 yards, or 
1,500 feet, and would have been a very effective anti-siege weapon. Although only one was found, some historians suggest that some or maybe all of the turrets had a ballista. So let's talk about the mile castles, Jen. Ooh, I hear the word castle color me intrigued. Also referred to as mini fortlets. Mini forts, like a mini cupcake or a mini quiche. The mile castles were what happens when you leave your big forts alone in the wild, untamed north for too long without any birth control. I mean, you play that sexy, sexy Roman cavalry music. You light some signal fires that only some of the castles can see. Not all of the castles, because they want their privacy. You've got the atmospheric fog coming down from the mountains. Gotta have the atmospheric fog. Or maybe it's snowy and you just all have to, like, get together for warmth. Huddle beneath the same blanket, perhaps. <laughs> You're watching a really bad Netflix Christmas movie because it's, it's what's on and also you secretly like it. Maybe somebody has a little bit of an expansionist agenda. Maybe they want to expand that castle. Boom. Nine months later, mini fortlets. Anyway, there are a lot of mile castles or mini fortlets placed at intervals of approximately one mile along Hadrian's Wall. And there were 80 of them. On the wall, those forts were getting busy. They're not large, but they were definitely bigger than the turrets. Most were about 50 by 60 feet. Look, they weren't large, but they served a purpose. You don't have to be large if you're a mini fortlet. You can be mini and still be a fortlet. Anyway, so I'm trying to explain how most were about 50 by 60 feet. They were not uniform. A lot of the time, military construction in ancient Rome was pretty uniform based on various set plans. So the fact that they weren't uniform may have been a bit of a departure. The biggest one measures about 90 by 76 feet, which is a lot bigger than my apartment personally. So the mile castles were built with their north walls attached to Hadrian's Wall and the rest of the fort on the southern side. So they were not like sticking out of the northern side. They were all on the southern side. And like the north side of the wall was the north side of the fort. The remains of a few internal buildings have been found inside some of the mile castles. They were probably barracks. There was usually one long barracks building in most mile castle forts, and some of the larger ones had two long barracks buildings. So a few had unique features. One was found with a stove oven built in the inside corner of a wall. Another has a well-preserved flight of stone stairs, which has helped scholars estimate the height of the wall. The mile castles were better built and more luxurious than the extremely basic turret accommodations. Archaeology shows us that the mile castles were furnished and had glass in their windows, which is wild to me. There may have been as few as 12 or as many as 30 to 40 men stationed at a mile castle at any time. And there may also have been horses. Some pieces of horse tack have been found at mile castles. Evidence suggests that men lived here more long-term than in the turrets cooking meals and repairing and making their own equipment. But it's hard to say how long. A tour of duty at one of these mile castles may have lasted weeks or months or maybe even years. So if you wanted to pass through Hadrian's Wall, the most common and numerous crossing points would have been through a mile castle. There was a gate on the north side of each mile castle through the wall itself and a gate to the south. So anyone who wanted to go through the wall had to pass through the mile castle. The gates were large, heavy wooden doors mounted on a pivot hinge, big enough to accommodate a large cart. There was a tower above the northern gate, which was about 30 feet high, for observation. The mile castles were clearly very important in controlling traffic through the walls, but some mile castles were built in extremely impractical places. Several have northern gates that open onto extremely steep slopes that nobody would be able to get up 
Probably not with a horse, definitely not with a cart, maybe even not walking on foot. And some open onto 100-foot cliffs. The moon door? You got to make the bad man fly. Hadrian built these in specifically so you could eject your enemies out of the cliff. Oh, totally. Hadrian was like, listen, send them to this castle, and when you've had enough of them, this is where all the prisoners go, just kick them out the door. Out the moon door. Gone. Don't waste any time, like, strangling them, putting them in a horrible hole. Just kick them out the moon door. This is a very efficient way to treat your enemies. Makes total sense. We are solving mysteries right and left over here. Look at us. You solve lots of mysteries when you're on your, like, second or third glass of wine. You also create other mysteries, but let's just stick with the positive. It's just mysteries wrapped in enigmas, more and more questions. Wrapped in bacon. (laughs) As soon as we answer one, bacon. Can I tell you about the sweet, sweet earthworks? Please tell me about the sweet, sweet earthworks. There are two major earthworks associated with Hadrian's Wall. The ditch to the north and the vallum to the south. Both of these ditches, because they were both ditches, would have been extremely difficult to dig. The ground in this area of England is rough and rocky. The rocks and boulders in the ground were the same as in the quarries, so hard that in some places, even the extremely competent and undefeatable Roman army engineers just gave the fuck up. They were like, you know what? The rock wanted it more. (laughs) This has been a long, hard fight, and I'm just, I have to, the rock wins. I have spent years of my life digging this basic ditch. I'm just done. I'm done. Or call me to Rome. Throw me out the moon door. But the rock wants it more. I'm not fighting this fight anymore. Make me fly. It's better than digging this asshole out of the ground. So... Also, if you dig just a few feet down in some areas, you get to clay that would have been very hard to work with. If the sun was hot, it would bake the clay iron hard. If it was raining, the clay would become so slippery, it would be practically impossible to stand up in these ditches with their steeply slanting sides. And then having to throw the heavy clay out of the ditches as you got deeper and deeper would have been just awful. So digging these ditches would have been horrific work, and each one was dug out of the earth using hand tools and years of back-breaking misery. So let's take a closer look at these ditches. We're going to start with the ditch to the north. This is the basic ditch. To the north of the wall, on the side facing the untamed ginger north. Ancient gingers. (laughs) There was a basic ditch that stretched the entire length of the wall, about 73 miles. In most places... It was about 9 feet deep, 28 feet wide, and shaped like a V. So it would have had real steep sloping sides that would have been a bitch to dig. The earth that was displaced in digging this ditch was heaped up to the north and then sloped into a low mound that would have made the ditch even deeper on that side. So the idea was to create a barrier that would slow down anyone attacking the wall without giving attackers a place to take cover from people shooting at them from the wall. Like they wanted to create a barrier but not a shelter. So... Earthen bridges or causeways were built over the ditches in front of gateways, allowing passage through to or from the north. The ditch changed shape and depth based on the topography, and in some places, such as in the rugged central section, where the wall was built up against a natural barrier, like a cliff or a river, it wasn't there at all. There's some evidence of corner cutting with the northern ditch. For instance, near Mile Castle 30, There are several large granite boulders still in the ditch. The soldiers were definitely supposed to take those out, but they didn't. And it's not like they didn't try. You can see places where the workers tried to drive wedges into the boulders to break them into pieces. Eventually, they just abandoned their work and left the boulders in the ditch. As I said, 
The boulders wanted it more. Yeah, so between that basic ditch and the wall is a flat lawn called a berm. And depending on where you are on the wall, this lawn area is about 8 to 20 feet wide. Archaeologists have discovered evidence that in Roman times, the berm was a kind of deadly obstacle course with a checkerboard pattern of three rows of pits containing large, sharpened stakes. Just like at Elysia, someone's been reading the playbook. Oh, Miss Williamson, I did make it widely available, did I not? Have you read it twice, Miss Williamson? Yes, Julius Caesar, you did make it widely available. I have read it cover to cover. Yes, you did. Everyone bow down. Have you read it on the podcast cover to cover for your listeners so they understand the brilliance of my mind in all its totality? Julius Caesar, go back to what you were doing, which is definitely watching, I don't know what, the Great British Bake Off or some shit. Julius Caesar loves the Great British Bake Off. It is so civilized. And trying to talk about these sharpened stakes in these pits. This system of pits and stakes was well-maintained and repaired even into the 200s AD. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. That's the basic ditch to the north. As far as Roman defensive earthworks go, it's pretty basic. It's standard. They were all building ditches like this. They were everywhere. They were super basic ditches. But there's a southern earthwork that's stranger and weirder and more mysterious. The vallum. Let's talk about the vallum, kids. Are you ready? Everyone's got to have a favorite part of Hadrian's wall mine is the vallum. (laughs) And the moon doors. (laughs) So the vallum is a ditch and two mounds built south of the wall on the Roman-controlled side that runs uninterrupted almost the entire length of the wall, all 73 miles. The ditch is about 10 feet deep, 20 feet wide, and flat at the bottom. The two mounds on either side are about 20 feet wide and 7 feet high each, and placed about 30 feet from the edge of this ditch on either side. In large areas, a third mound, the marginal mound, runs right along the lip of the ditch. Altogether, this earthwork stretches about 100 feet wide, and it runs all along the wall on the southern side, the side facing into Roman-controlled Britain. Why is it there? What is it for? Remember, the people the wall was supposed to be keeping out are the wild gingers upstairs on the northern side. Look, we're the rowdy upstairs neighbors, and we don't care. The rowdy gingers give absolutely no goddamn fucks. Zero fucks. And the thing is that the earthworks on the northern side are not as impressive as the earthworks on the southern side. Why was the vallum needed? Who were they keeping out? I don't know. The ancient Roman military tended to build things based on set plans, so a military fort or defensive wall in Britain would probably have the same features as one in Parthia or Germania or Dacia. But no other Roman wall has an earthwork like this one. It's not found anywhere else. It's a giant mystery. This period in history is not well documented. There's no mention of the vellum anywhere in Roman sources. The earliest mention we have of it is in Bede's Ecclesiastical History of England. He talks about a vallum, which means rampart in Latin, which is distinct from the wall itself. That's why we call it a vallum today, even though it's mostly a ditch and the word for that in Latin is fossa. In the 1800s, gentlemen scholars believed that the vallum was built before the wall, long before. They used to refer to it as Agricola's ditch because people thought that Agricola had been the one to build it. That's wrong. The stone wall was built before the vallum, but it all dates to the reign of Hadrian. The vallum is a baffling feature of the wall today. We don't know what it was for, but the Romans sure were committed to it. In some places, the vallum was cut into solid rock, sometimes for a long way. There's one section of Hadrian's wall that runs along the top of a cliff, 
Behind it, on the southern side, the ground drops away steeply into a valley, and the vallum is built in that valley far below, as many as 2,300 feet away from the wall itself. So, what do we know about the vallum? We know that it was built during the construction period of the rest of Hadrian's Wall, so it was part of the original plan. We know that the two mounds, three in some places, associated with the vallum were built at the same time, mostly made of earth dug out of the ditch. We know that causeways were built through it at the entrances of important forts and a few mile castles, although at some mile castles, a route was cut across the northern mound of the vallum, but not the ditch or the southern mound. So that's really weird. There was an access point going through the northern mound, but not the southern mound or the ditch. And we know that the vallum was built with great care, unlike the ditch to the north, where large boulders were sometimes left littering the bottom. Very little excavation has been done on the vallum, so there is a lot we don't know about it still. Some scholars believe that the vallum's role may have been to establish a boundary between the civilian areas south of the wall and the military zone at the wall itself. Kind of like a no man's land. But geophysical surveys have found civilian towns built right up to the wall itself, with buildings on the north and south side of the vallum. So that's clearly not true. I'm wondering if this was built as a moat or as like a canal that they were able to like float things down on or even just like a a reservoir kind of thing. Because if you think about it, all this troops and food and stone and the stuff they have to get from one side to another that might only be found in one area, they had to get it to the other area. And we know it's like back-breaking intense labor. Well, if they cut this sort of waterway in, that makes it so much easier to transport. And it's so precise and it's so important it's precise and that it's flat at the bottom. So you could move along it either with animals pulling on either side or with poles. I have not seen that suggestion made in any of my ancient or modern sources at all. And I think it's a really great suggestion because one thing we do know about Hadrian's Wall is that there was not a um, dedicated military road to the south of the wall built on Hadrian's Wall, you know, to facilitate movement between different forts and mile castles until much later after the wall was constructed, until after the troops had been reassigned to the Antonine Wall and then come back. You know, I've seen some historians suggest that the reason why was they didn't need it because people could move along the top of the wall, but it would have been so much easier to bring heavy equipment and stone and things between forts and mile castles and stuff like that if they had a canal. So that's a really good point. It's quite possible. I don't know if there's a reason that historians haven't suggested this, but I'm really intrigued by this idea. I haven't done the research. It was just my brain was doing those circles of like, but why would it be so precise? And why would it, what's the importance of it? When we were talking about this, it seemed to me it was so important that everything was so precise. And that precision made me think, well, that had to have a purpose. They might not have been able to cut a straight Roman road. So while they could move things along the top, big things like big things of grain or rock or even bodies of troops would be faster moved along the river or a canal. Yeah, it's quite possible. The only thing I could think of that might be a reason why historians are not suggesting this is a big possibility, and maybe somebody has, like I haven't seen all the sources that there are on this, obviously, is that maybe archaeologists have looked at the bottom of the vallum and what is, you know, actually in this ditch, and they've seen that, like, there isn't, like, the sedimentary pattern or whatever that would indicate that there had been water in there at one point. Also, a lot of the vallum hasn't been excavated at all, so I don't even know if they've even done that work. Exactly. And I imagine depending on where the vellum is and depending on how the land has shifted over time, it would be quite difficult to know. Maybe, maybe not. I mean, there are places where it's pristine and then there are places where it's completely, you know, plowed under. (laughs) 
talk about the forts, Jen. There is 17 large forts along Hadrian's Wall. And these forts must have been the absolute bane of existence for those who built the wall. That and the ditch digging and the hard stone and the rocks wanting it more and all of this fucking bullshit. Many other forts throughout Wales and Northern Britain were depopulated to provide more troops to man these larger forts along the wall. The original design of Hadrian's Wall was just the wall itself, the mile castles, and the turrets. Under that design, most of the men stationed at the wall would be housed at the forts already built along the Stanegate Road, with some rotations at turrets and mile castles. However, just two years after starting construction, Hadrian ordered major changes to the wall's design that required large swaths of the already constructed wall to be pulled down and rebuilt. One of those changes involved these forts. People were so mad, I bet. Oh, you can imagine. They're like, Hadrian, mate, come up here and try and, like, dig these boulders out. Exactly. So Hadrian ordered 17 full-sized forts to be built along the wall, which required some of the already built sections of the wall to be demolished, including a mile castle and some turrets. The forts were placed approximately seven miles or so along the wall, unlike the mile castles, which stood entirely to the south of the wall. The larger forts mostly stuck out on both sides, with three gates opening to the north and one to the south. This suggests that the priority was to facilitate troop movements north rather than peaceful commerce moving in both directions. These forts were built to standard plans for a marching camp in the Roman army. This was the same fort design that armies would throw up in a day while marching into unfriendly territory as permanent bases or temporary shelter. But at the wall, they were permanent and usually built in stone. This is essentially literally the building program they used was like, this is what we throw up in a day to keep us safe from unfriendly people. And then they'd like tear it down and go somewhere else. But instead of tearing it down, they just kept it up. Well, yeah. And and actually, there's some interesting nuances to what you just said, because one of the things that we find at some of the forts, definitely the fort at Vindolanda, which is at the Stangate Road, is that every time a new rotation of troops came in, they would demolish the old fort and build a new one. Whoa. Yeah, like the earlier iterations of the fort would be wood and then they would start building it over in stone. And we're going to get into that more in the next episode. So each fort was rectangular in shape with rounded corners shaped like a pack of playing cards. Most were surrounded by a V-shaped ditch of their own, although not all forts needed one. Sometimes there was a natural defense like a cliff or a river. All forts had a headquarters building, you know, like a fancy villa for the head officer, a hospital, granaries, and barracks that also doubled as stables. Their size varied depending on who was stationed there. A smaller fort had room for about 480 men or an infantry cohort, and a larger one made room for cavalry units, 500 to 1,000 men plus horses. The largest fort, Stanwick's, which is now buried beneath a suburb, was thought to house a very celebrated and distinguished 1,000-man cavalry unit. I'm going to tell you about the Viki. When it was on the move, the Roman army was followed by a significant number of non-military hangers-on. Merchants, sex workers, slave traders, and others who made their living selling various things to the soldiers, or unfortunately, because the ancient world was awful, buying conquered people wholesale to sell as slaves, as famously happened when Julius Caesar was in Gaul. When the army settled in one place for any length of time, a significant civilian settlement would often spring up around the military forts, and Hadrian's Wall was no exception. There were approximately 15,000 people stationed on the wall at most, especially in the early years. These men were what you might think of as a captive market. They had to stay in one place, and they had money. They got a salary. It wasn't a big salary for rank-and-file soldiers, but it was steady. 
this was not at all common or guaranteed in ancient Rome. Or anywhere else in the ancient world, really. They know their paycheck is coming, and the people who are building their commerce and community around them know that the soldiers have money. They probably know exactly what day payday is. Oh, I'm sure everybody at that community knew exactly what day payday is. So the Vikis were civilian towns that sprang up around the forts along Hadrian's Wall. The soldiers needed regular supplies, food, entertainment, distraction, and luxuries, especially if they were, you know, higher-ranking soldiers and they could afford them. And merchants and other business owners flocked to the Viki, these civilian settlements, to provide all of that. Civilian towns grew and developed around the forts along Hadrian's Wall. These were fairly large settlements. Some historians suggest that the communities that sprang up around forts on Hadrian's Wall were the largest anywhere in the UK at the time, outside of the big towns in the south like Londinium. For this time period, Hadrian's Wall may have been an urban environment. Geophysical surveys have shown that the Viki were densely packed on both sides of the vallum, built right up to the south side of the wall itself. In all of these settlements, there would be, it's basically kind of laid out the same way. There would be one main road leading out from the fort, and this was prime real estate. There was a lot of movement of soldiers, you know, people with money who were going to buy things along this road. It's like the main street. So the buildings along the major road tended to be strip buildings, basically long, narrow rectangles with a narrow front accessing the road. And that's where your business was, you know, your like bar or your fast food joint or your shop. Or your emporium that sells shiny, shiny, shiny things you stole from the neighbors up north because you did that. The shiny emporium of stolen ginger wares. Yeah. (laughs) That's what you'd have, you know, right on the road. And then the bulk of the building would continue back and that's where the shop owner would live and stuff and where the storage was. So again, to me, this just makes me feel like that's so much more evidence why the Vallum would have been a moat. Like, think about the things that the shop owners were bringing in. They would need somehow to, like, get it transported. And obviously, like, it would be easier if that was some kind of moat or, like, canal that they could bring things along. Tinfoil hat's firmly on, but here's another thought. My Smurf tinfoil hat, my Phrygian cap is on. Like, my other thought is, what if you are a merchant up there at the wall and you own several different franchises in different vikis along the wall? You'd have to move goods. It just would save so much labor on like traveling things along and especially if like the path between some of these mile castles and stuff wasn't like an even path this would make it easier and not just easier it would make it quicker and I think that's the other thing to really bear in mind like sometimes you really need to move those troops from one place to another quickly or that grain or wine or for whatever reason you need to just move things fast and if you have a canal you have the ability to do that exactly so the viki at their height would have been bustling trade centers with goods coming in from all over the Roman Empire. At its height, this was far from the middle of nowhere. You could get anything you wanted at Hadrian's Wall. There are multiple opportunities to source shiny, shiny treasures at Hadrian's Wall. Jen, you'd love it. I know. But there are also signs that the Vikis were a rough neighborhood. Archaeologists have found loaded dice, counterfeit currency, and murder victims in the Vikis. In a home in a Vikis, Just south of Housted's Fort, two skeletons were found under the floor in the back room of a building that may have been an inn. One, a man, had the tip of a knife lodged between his ribs. The other skeleton was more decomposed, but researchers think it may have been a woman. And this isn't the only example of this. We're going to talk about some more examples in an upcoming episode. But first, I want to talk about the big mystery of Hadrian's Wall, which is why was Hadrian's Wall built? Why was it built, Jen? Keep out us gingers. 
Yeah, you would think that. I mean, the obvious answer is that, you know, to keep back the gingers upstairs. Listen, you don't want my soulless friends coming down from the north and just taking everything you own. Because we would and we could. That is the obvious answer, yes. But there are some problems with that answer, which I'm going to get into. Whatever. Okay, well, I made you read some of the paragraphs about how that's not maybe true. So you're just going to have to sell it to us, Jen. So let's dig into this mystery a little more. And let's start with Jen's favorite answer, which was like subduing the gingers to the north and protecting the Roman British provinces to the south from attack from said gingers. Gingers, also non-gingers, but you know, I'm just gonna, I'm leaning into the gingers right now. I know not everyone in ancient Scotland was ginger, but when do I get a chance to represent my people like this? We're just gonna lean hard on this ginger angle because I find it funny. Now, moving on. Reason one, to protect against attack from potentially said gingers. Wild, untamed gingers. Watch out, folks. They're coming south for your land, for your cattle, for your shiny shinies. They're coming to get ya. This is the most obvious reason that most people believe Hadrian's Wall was built. But there were some weird mysteries about the wall that bring this theory into doubt. For all its size and importance, Hadrian's Wall is mentioned in only one place in the ancient sources, the Historia Augusta. Everything about the Historia Augusta is fuzzy. You all know why it's problematic. It was sort of created as a collection of biographies on Roman emperors, sort of like Suetonius's 12 Caesars, but not. And we don't know who wrote it. We don't know when it dates to. We don't know who wrote it. We don't know what axes they had to grind. We don't know what their sources were. It may have been written in the 4th century AD, but that date is definitely disputed. As we said, the author or authors are very fuzzy, and it's factually dubious to say the very least. But it's the ancient world. Any source we have is what we're going to go with, right? Exactly. We're going to work with what we have. So there is a life of Hadrian in the Historia Augusta. So it tells us that at the beginning of Hadrian's reign, he visited his armies in Gaul and Germania, made a lot of reforms, and then, quote, Having reformed the army quite in the manner of a monarch, he set out for Britain, and there he corrected many abuses and was the first to construct a wall 80 miles in length, which was to separate the barbarians from the Romans. And that is it. That's the only place Hadrian's Wall is mentioned in the ancient sources. 73 miles, 25 million individual stone blocks, 6 to 10 years of backbreaking labor to complete, and this is the only mention we get. And it's in the Historia Augusta of all places. The Historia Augusta tells us that Hadrian's Wall was built to shield the northern Romano-British provinces from the wild, untamed peoples to the north. And at first glance, this looks legit, right? This theory seems sound. The deep defensive ditch, the elaborate booby traps, more doors opening to the north and the south, at the forts and mile castles to better allow troop movement in that direction to control and subjugate my peoples. I mean, also the moon doors. Also the moon doors. Yeah. It all looks like the wall was there as a military fortification to both defend against attack and allow for military control. But here's what's weird about that theory. This was not a really volatile border. The last big battle here was Mons Grappius, which took place about 40 years before the wall was built. There isn't much evidence that the people north of the wall were that organized, you know, enough to provide a real serious military threat to that border. Not on such an epic scale that a wall of this size would have been required to keep them out. I'm not saying that there wasn't raiding up there and that it wasn't a problem, but there was raiding in a lot of places throughout the empire and they didn't build a giant wall to stop it. If they wanted to subdue the north, building a giant wall as a base 
is not how the Romans would usually operate. If they wanted to subdue this area or even just maintain the Stangate boundary, all they had to do was build a few forts up there. Actually, they didn't even have to do that. They could just recommission the old Glen blockers and all the roads and networks that Agricola had left for them. He'd left this infrastructure. It was already there to allow them to hold control of who got in and out of the highlands. And you see the Romans building forts in the middle of communities that they wanted to subjugate all the time. Like, this is their normal operating procedure. They didn't build these giant walls. They put a fort in places that they wanted to control, and they just sallied out from there. They didn't have to build the forts. Like, they already had the forts in Scotland. Why did they need that wall? By comparison, Hadrian also visited Germania before traveling up to the UK, and this area was much more volatile than the Stangate border. And the fortification Hadrian had built along this boundary was basically just a stockade fence and a ditch. There are also some design flaws in Hadrian's Wall that would have hurt its ability to operate in wartime. Some of the forts are placed in not the most strategically optimal places. There is at least one placed in an area where the ground slopes down to the south of the wall, so the line of visibility north would not have been great, and I don't think they would have had the high ground which is not ideal when you're trying to fight people charging your wall. Also, some of the turrets are placed so you can't see the next adjacent turret. It's behind a hill or a mountain pass. This is significant because one major function of turrets, mile castles, and forts is to provide an unbroken chain for signaling. Yeah, because there were not, you know, cell phones or walkie-talkies back then. I think the thing to remember about these turrets is there's that incredible scene in Lord of the Rings, I think it's in the third film, where they light the beacons and you see all these beautiful beacons going up all over in these remote areas of just fire bursting. And that's how people could tell from really long distances that help was needed. This unbroken chain of beacons that were always manned would tell you what was going on. So if that's what the wall is for, it fails. Yeah, that's the problem, because it would have been absolutely crucial to defending the wall in case of an attack to be able to get these signals all along the wall to let them know if there's a breach in the wall and to send men very quickly. Because there's no instantaneous method of communication. This would have been the most instantaneous method that you had. One of the weaknesses of a giant defensive wall like Hadrian's Wall is that your soldiers are all spread out along it. So if one area comes under attack, it can take a really long time for someone to ride out from that area and tell the next big fort to send reinforcements, especially if there isn't like a good road to the south of the wall that they can just ride on. I mean, maybe there's a canal. We don't know. Signaling allowed word to travel all up and down the wall much more quickly. By lighting a fire at the top of a turret or a tower, or maybe flashing a piece of cloth or board across a fire in a certain pattern, you could signal the next tower down from you, who could signal the next tower down from them, that something is up somewhere and they need to send help or whatever. This only works, though, if each tower has an unbroken view of the ones to east and west. But there are several points in the wall where you wouldn't have been able to stand on a tower and see the next one down on the line. And this would have made sections of Hadrian's Wall dark to each other in an emergency. That's a problem. So let's look at a second reason people have advanced for why we have Hadrian's Wall up there. The second reason is it was supposed to be a customs barrier. So another suggestion I've seen is that Hadrian's Wall was built to serve as a kind of customs barrier and control the passage of people and trade between the Roman communities to the south 
and the tribes to the north. It's likely that the wall did serve that function, but why would Hadrian need such a huge, massive, giant customs border, bigger than any other customs border in the whole empire, all the way up there? True, there were bustling trade communities at each of the forts along the wall, but these had sprung up to serve the soldiers. If the military didn't have such a huge presence up there, it's unlikely all those merchants and traders would have a reason to go that far north. We're not saying that trade didn't happen here or that tribes to the north of the wall didn't have contact with the outside world. But this wouldn't have been a hub of international trade at the time on the scale of, say, Egypt or Syria. The Romans didn't put massive customs barriers in front of those communities. So why would it need one here? Would the Roman Empire even collect enough in customs duties to finance the manning and operations of the wall? It's not sure, but it seems really unlikely. So here's another idea, Jenny. Maybe the wall wasn't necessarily there to block attacks from the north so much as to provide an unequivocal statement to the tribes up there. We're here. We're Roman. We're powerful. Do not mess with us. Get used to this. Yeah, I mean, that's possible. The wall was big. It was intimidating. It was no doubt the largest structure of any kind that a person north of the wall would have ever seen. Although that's not to say that people north of the wall didn't have large complex communities because they definitely did. But Hadrian's Wall was the biggest Roman artifact ever in existence, so it probably would have been pretty big for the people at the time. So the Romans on the Wall would have been a massive presence up there. Some historians believe that the Wall was painted white or coated in white plaster at one point in time, creating a bright white barrier that would have reflected sunlight and been visible for miles, making it extra imposing. But yet again, we run into the question— Why was such a huge statement needed here? Were the tribes to the north really such a threat that they had to be subdued and intimidated with such a huge show of force? Wouldn't the Glenblocker forts have been more effective in controlling and intimidating this area? Here's another possibility, Jenny. Hadrian's primary reason for building this wall may have been to keep his troops occupied. The Roman Empire at this point still had some trappings of democracy. They had a Senate still, for instance, which did not have the kind of power to govern that it used to back in the good old Republic days. But on a practical level, what it had evolved to was essentially a military dictatorship. In a military dictatorship, the ruler's power derives from his troops. He has to keep the troops happy. Otherwise, they'll revolt, kill him, and raise someone else up as emperor. Where have we seen that before? Go listen to the Praetorian Guards episodes. Those are completely about that. Exactly. This happened to a lot of Roman emperors throughout the empire's 400-year history. Yeah, so to stay emperor and to stay alive, you had to keep your military happy. And how do you keep the troops happy? By showering them with loot and giving them the chance to get more loot and plunder by conquering neighboring kingdoms. Trajan did this a lot. He was one of Rome's most expansionist emperors. Under him, the empire grew to its largest size, yet he really knew how to keep the troops happy. But Hadrian had little interest in conquest. He didn't want to add more territory that would make the empire even more unwieldy and difficult to govern. He wanted to pull back and keep his border secure. That would have left him with a problem. How to keep the troops nice and obedient. One possibility was to give them a massive building project. One so big and so complicated that it kept thousands of Roman legionaries occupied for years at a time. Britain was a huge Roman territory at the time. Approximately one in ten men in the Roman army at this point were stationed in Britain. 
If those legions rebelled, it would have been a massive problem for Hadrian. And later on, Britain did serve as a breeding ground for usurpers. So it's quite possible that Hadrian's Wall was just one big MacGuffin side project to keep the legions stationed in Britain too busy to cause Hadrian any real trouble. So what do you think, Jen? What's the most persuasive argument so far to you? I mean, the one I want to go with is like impressive statement to keep the gingers out. But the reality to me seems that it could have just been a lot of busy work. Yeah, you know, I feel that way too. I feel like given the um, strategic and tactical weaknesses of Hadrian's Wall and given the fact that the Roman MO here, if they really wanted to subjugate an area, was not to build a giant wall, but to um, build a bunch of forts and networks and roads, which they already had in Scotland. Like there's no reason they couldn't just, you know, recommission that stuff. I think it had to have been busy work. I think it had to have been. Hadrian needed people stationed there to keep the frontier. In order to keep people happy and to keep people stationed there, he probably needed to give them some busy work. Yeah, I think so too. So we're going to fall on the side of um, the MacGuffin. Hadrian's Wall is just a giant MacGuffin up there. It's rare that we agree on something. (laughs) It is. I mean, I know what my heart wants me to say, but the reality is like, I have worked in corporate America, corporate Britain. I know busy work when I see busy work. (laughs) Yeah, the arguments for the busy work to me seem a lot stronger than the arguments for anything else. Okay, in my heart, guys, I'm totally leaning towards needing to flex to let the gingers know we're in charge because you know the gingers are really just going to come down and take your stuff. But, you know, my mind definitely tells me it is a MacGuffin. It is just a busy work group project. It's a group project. Oh, God. The dreaded group project. Oh, no. Like, this makes me have so much sympathy for the builders who are just like, fuck it. The boulder wants it more. I'm out. You know, I'm having so much anxiety at the mention of group projects right now. (laughs) God, it it is. It's a giant group project. It's like, there's that one guy who's the overachiever. And he's like, the emperor's going to know that you narrowed the wall from 10 to 8 feet. Oh, my God. I'm going to be in so much trouble. And the other guy guys are like, we just need, we fucking need to just get this done. (laughs) I mean, both Jenny and I, even though we co-host this project and work relatively well together, hate group work and joint projects. I don't know how we're still friends. I really, it really baffles me. Oh, it's because we get drunk when we record these episodes. That's true. (laughs) If I was sober doing this, I'd never talk to you again. (laughs) Same. (laughs) I'm glad we agree. So that's it for this week. (laughs) We hope that you found this as fascinating as we did. Hadrian's Wall is just one of those things in in antiquity that I'm just like, how did it work? Why did it work? It's a giant 73-mile-long mystery that's not mentioned in any ancient sources. Riddle me that. Except the history of Augusta, which my position on that is it shouldn't count. So anyway, in two weeks, we're going to come back at you with more on Hadrian's Wall. And this time, we're going to focus on the men and women who lived and died up there, what their lives were like. In the meantime, come and see us on social at Ancient Hist Fan on Twitter and Ancient History Fangirl at Instagram and Facebook. Yeah, and you can check out our Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash ancient history fangirl. And starting at just $2 a month, you can get ad free episodes and exclusive bonus episodes. Bonus episodes are for our $5 and up subscribers. And we tend to have about two bonus episodes a month. You could get us once a week if you signed up for our Patreon. So we have some Patreon members to thank, don't we, Jen? We do. Maya? Angela Castleberry and Amanda Carballo. Thank you so much for listening and we will see you in two weeks. <laughs>